This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. You're listening to C-Suite Success Radio with your host and executive coach, Sharon Smith. If corporate success is your goal, C-Suite Success Radio offers you informative interviews with experts that will help you shorten your learning curve and accelerate your momentum to higher achievement. C-Suite Success Radio makes it simple and easy for you to tap into the wisdom of other successful business people who know the path you're traveling. If you're ready for success in corporate America, welcome to your new home at C-Suite Success Radio. And now, time for your host and C-Suite executive coach, Sharon Smith. Welcome to this week's episode of C-Suite Success Radio. I am your host, Sharon Smith of C-Suite Results. Each week we focus on success, a word we all know and something we strive towards, but not a word that's easy to define. All of our topics and guests are aimed to help you achieve the goals you've set for your organization and for yourself as a leader, but more importantly, to help you accelerate the pace of your success. On today's show, we have Mike Sheila, the founder of Mike Sheila Consulting, an admitted LinkedIn geek. Mike loves talking LinkedIn, sales and emotional intelligence to anyone who will listen. Mike is a frequent podcast guest, speaker, and occasional guest on Fox 45 in Baltimore. Let's listen to the conversation I had with Mike and learn how he defines success and the lessons he has learned to help you gain the edge you are looking for. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining the call today. Thank you for having me on the show today, Sharon. I am looking forward to this. It's going to be fun. You have so much energy that you bring to our conversations. I'm really excited to see where the conversation goes. As am I. I have no idea what I'm going to say. Perfect. Perfect. Neither do I. That's, <laughs> I like how that goes. It's much, it's much more fun that way than listening to some scripted conversation. We want to make these real conversations. And we're going to start with you telling us about your consulting practice. It's Mike Sheila Consulting. And what is it that you're doing? Mike Sheila Consulting started out of a pretty simple idea. I was in telecom sales for 17 years and sales overall, I started in sales in 1996, so a long time. And like many sales, I started before the internet was big and I had to generate my own leads. And I did that by cold calling. Specifically, I did it by telemarketing. And as the world evolved, telemarketing and cold calling in general became less and less effective. And I found myself using LinkedIn more and more to get in front of my clients. And I started having colleagues say to me, well, how'd you get into that account? I said, oh, well, I use LinkedIn. Well, how'd you do that? And I got, got to a point where I said, you know, I really should start charging money for this. So <laughs> that's how Mike Sheila Consulting was born. First and foremost, I teach people LinkedIn prospecting. And in the last year or so, it's evolved. It's also become sales training. So that's a big focus for my business. And about a year ago, emotional intelligence became a component of that. And without getting too long into the story, I was hired to do my LinkedIn training one day and said, well, we'd love to have you do a second breakout session. What else can you talk about? And the topic of emotional intelligence came up and the person that was hiring me said, you know what, why don't you do a session on that? And I said, okay. So I spent the next six months reading every book that I could get my hand on around the topic of emotional intelligence. And, and for me, it was a real awakening because if you think about your professional life like a puzzle, 
Emotional intelligence was me snapping in the last piece of the puzzle and being able to see the whole picture and going, I get it now. Well, tell us more about that. What do you mean, first of all, by emotional intelligence for those listening who may have heard the term or know it's a buzzword or think they know what it is? Let's talk about what emotional intelligence is, and then I'm really interested to learn more about how it's that last piece of the puzzle and what that did for you. Sure. In in my research and study of the topic, what I have found is each one of us have this content filter that we have been weaving since the day we were born. Every time we interact or have an experience in life, that helps to create the content filter. So from the moment you were born and the first time you got fed by your mother to today, you've had billions of experiences. And each time you have an experience, your content filter takes that into consideration and modifies the filter. And the main reason for that is it was originally a survival technique. You go back hundreds and thousands of years ago when we weren't nearly as evolved as we are now. I say that tongue firmly in cheek. And we had to know, I can eat that animal or that animal's going to eat me. The trouble is we still let a significant portion of our day-to-day interactions be dictated by that core fight-or-flight mentality. We have all these little filters in place that are telling us that is safe, that is not safe. Now, there's a certain part of us that it's really good for. So for example, if you've ever heard somebody say trusting their gut, that is actually, without getting too deep into science, that's your amygdala taking your content filter and saying, I know what to do in this situation because I've seen it before. And on the flip side of that, we have things that happen where people will say, well, they followed their heart. And that's the very emotional, the very knee-jerk reaction of the emotional content filter where logically we know we really should not do this, but our content filter is telling us, no, do it because it'll make you feel good. Emotional intelligence is the ability that regardless of the experience, let the experience pass through the content filter and give your brain an opportunity to logically process the information for what it is. And depending on the aspect of your life, There's varying levels to which we are competent at that. So there are certain things about our business life that we have a very high emotional intelligence. There are things about our personal life that we have very low personal intelligence. And it's a spectrum. So the more you practice at it, the better you can improve your ability to appropriately respond in all facets of your life. How can someone tell how good they are or how their, how high their emotional intelligence is in any one given area? Is there something that they can look at or think about that would help them say, I have a high emotional intelligence in this area, but maybe not this area? What would someone do to, to assess that for themselves? Well, very candidly, the, the, the most inexpensive way to do it and most effective in my mind is Dr. Travis Bradbury wrote this book called Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And he also wrote a book called the Emotional Intelligence Quick Book. If you buy either one of them, you get an online code to take his assessment. And he breaks your emotional intelligence down into four categories and gives you a score of 1 to 100 in each of the four categories. And then from there, 
you can work to develop them. Well, that's a great piece of advice, having a book. I'm familiar with Dr. Travis, and actually we he and I are LinkedIn connections. This is really great. I'm sure he'll appreciate you sharing that information. Yeah, I and, absolutely love him. Yeah, this stuff's really, really good. How do you use emotional intelligence to help folks from a sales perspective? Because I know with your background in sales, it's a lot of the training you do is in sales, whether it's true sales or whether it's LinkedIn prospecting, you do a lot for sales teams and sales organizations. How does emotional intelligence fit into the sales organization and the sales training and a salesperson's job? I'll give a couple of examples. If you've ever been in any kind of sales training, there's a lot of cliche. And one of the most popular ones, and this was made popular by a gentleman named Zig Ziglar, who was a sales training icon for years. He passed away about five years ago, but he had been a pioneer in sales training. And when Zig talked, he had a little bit of a Southern accent to him, so he sounded a little funny when he would say something to you, but he'd go, you know, folks, you got two ears, you got one mouth, so you need to listen twice as much as you talk. That's a great Zig Ziglar impression, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. I got to see him speak live about 10 years ago, and it was fantastic. And listening twice as much as we speak. You hear it in sales training all the time. The part that almost always gets missed is in the sales world, they tell you to listen for the pain. What is the customer's pain? And what that's priming the salesperson to do is listen to respond. But what you really need to do is listen to understand. So if we go back to the content filter part of emotional intelligence, your, your filter is saying, okay, I hear this, this, and this, so now I know what to say or do. You don't want to do that. You want to let all the information pass through the filter and say, okay, in the past, I have said or done this in reaction to that. Is there a third response or a fourth response I could give now that would be better than the ones that I have given before? Because our brains are inherently efficient, but they're also inherently lazy. So if we have an answer, we want to just reuse that answer so that we don't have to think. But if we allow the information to pass through, the biggest benefit that a salesperson can do is get to that uncomfortable, awkward silence for a moment with the client where the client is speaking and then the client stops for a moment and goes, are you still listening to me? And that's when the salesperson has the okay to speak. And they say in response, I have been listening. I want to make sure that I understand your issues, your concerns, your problems. What I think I just heard you say is. And the more accurately you can reflect what that person just said to you, you do two things. First, you make sure that you understand them. But you make the other person feel validated. And in sales, one of the biggest things that prevents a salesperson from earning business is a lack of trust. A lot of sales situations are very adversarial. Think about the last time you bought a car. Did you enjoy it? I actually am someone who enjoys car shopping. (laughs) So you have the negotiation bug. I I enjoy that process because I'm always happy to walk away from it if it's not a good enough deal or if I don't like the salesperson. I I will go find the the better deal and the better salesperson or I will walk out with the deal that I want. I I think it's fun. You and I are the exception to that rule. The other 99% of the world (laughs) does not like it because it's very adversarial. Absolutely. 
And part of that is by design. The, the automotive industry and the, the practices that they teach for techniques to their salespeople, it's by design. And what I have come to learn is that the salesperson, quote unquote, really doesn't do the selling. It's the finance person. Because even if you walk in and we're going to pay cash, you end up meeting with the finance person. And they handle all the T's and C's. And that's a very uncomfortable situation for most people. And it's because of a low level of trust. Now, if you flip the script, if you find somebody that enjoys buying cars, other than people like you and me that really enjoy the thrill of a good negotiation, so they bought it from is somebody that they know very well. So I bought my last car from my Uncle Bob, or I bought my last car from my cousin Mary. And it's that high level of trust that facilitated the deal. And a big part of the reason that it makes it easier is trust reduces our content filter. When you have a high level of trust with somebody, you don't feel on alert. Ultimately, again, emotional intelligence is the personification of the fight or flight mechanism. The fight or flight mechanism kicks in when we have a trigger that we should be on alert. When that alert level is much lower, you're more transparent, you're more honest with the other party, and that allows for a more even flow of information and makes the process a lot smoother. What I like about everything you're sharing is while you're giving it to us from a sales perspective, everything you're saying is applicable to any relationship. Yes, and it's interesting that you say that. I did a presentation last night, actually, that's called Sales for Non-Salespeople and Everybody Sells. And the point of the presentation is, there's. I'm going to throw out another book here. So Great. Building up your library for you and your audience. Fantastic. There's a gentleman named Daniel H. Pink, and he wrote a book called To Sell is Human. And he talks about the fact that in the workforce world, salespeople make up roughly 20% of the professional workforce. So if you meet 100 people out on the street, 20 of them are in a sales role on average. The other 80% need to sell. And we use the car the, the car sale as an example. Now, you're not selling in that situation. You're the buyer, right? So you need to know how to negotiate. Another one is for people that are in the job market. Finding a job is almost the identical process to getting in front of a client and selling them a service. The process is almost identical. So I spend a lot of time talking to college students. In fact, I'm going to be at a school, I'm doing two colleges tomorrow, where I will be talking to them about creating LinkedIn profiles that allow them to attract the kind of jobs that they want and how they can actively go out and find the kind of jobs they want. And that is, that's a negotiation. That's having a high level of emotional intelligence. And there's a, there's a big concern today with millennials and a perceived lack of emotional intelligence. And I say perceived because by definition, do millennials have a lower emotional intelligence. Yes, but it's not because they're millennials, it's because the age. So for example, baby boomers, when they were 20, 25 years old, in general, had lower emotional intelligence. Gen Xers, when they were 20, 25 years old, in general, had lower emotional intelligence. The trend is, is that as we get older, 
within an age group, the emotional intelligence average score goes up. So it is very uncommon to find people in their early and mid-20s that have high emotional intelligence. And as you go into the 30s and then into the 40s and into the 50s, there is a natural trend upwards. And one of the big concerns, baby boomers retiring, that there's this huge gap in leadership with a high level of emotional intelligence. And I think it has less to do with the age of the people retiring. I think it has more to do with the people that are in roles of leadership today. That's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up and shared the the switch on perception because while I'm not a millennial, I do believe they get a bad rap in many cases. Sometimes, maybe. They do. Maybe we sometimes see some truth in what's being said, but they do get a really bad rap and they did grow up in a very different era than, than those before them. And it's true. If I think back on my 20s, I was not necessarily emotionally intelligent and at times in now 40 not necessarily always emotionally intelligent but i'm sure it has gotten better some by just learning right by what our content filter has learned and all the things around us what can someone do if they're listening to this and they are a millennial which just means an age group and they want to improve their emotional intelligence sooner than the natural process or they're a Gen Xer and they realize, like myself, oh, there's probably some more I could do to be more emotionally intelligent than I currently am for any generation. I don't know if age is really applicable to this, but how does someone improve their emotional intelligence? The first step is admitting that you have a problem. One uh, one of the great tips that Dr. Bradbury gives is you, you have to recognize your blind spots. So the interesting thing to me about emotional intelligence is depending on the scenario you're in, your score goes up and down. So perhaps in the work environment, you have a high aptitude, you have a high emotional intelligence, and you know how to engage. But perhaps with your family, you, your scores are lower. We've all heard that old saying, you always hurt the ones you love. Very different dynamic based on the person that we're interacting with. And as a result, our emotional intelligence in that moment can be different based on the scenario. So the first thing to do is say, okay, I don't know everything, so let's try and be intentional about this. And then the second one is, well, let's start to evaluate where are my blind spots? Like, where am I doing well? And where am I not doing well? And then one of the other, one of my other favorites is starting to recognize your triggers. What are the things that set you off? And why do they set you off? And and I'll I'll give you a very concrete example. When I do my emotional intelligence presentations, I give people a history of the life that I've gone through. And I do that to illustrate that every person you meet has had something happen to them. It's really about the severity of it. And by no means have I had a bad life. But I have had my own challenges, and so have you. And when we recognize that, you know, there's this famous quote, and I forget who they attribute it to, but it says, be kind for everyone that you meet is fighting a battle you have no idea about. It's oh. one of my favorite quotes. Yeah, and I've seen it cited to a dozen different people, so I don't even pretend to cite it to the appropriate <laughs> person anymore. Sure. But I grew up in a blue-collar, middle-class family. I'm an only child. I come from a very strong family. My parents were both married. They got married about a year before I was born, and they were married until they both passed away. And I had a strong family of cousins and aunts and uncles. I was very fortunate. But my life didn't have any real struggle. We weren't wealthy, but we weren't poor. 
if I needed something, I got it. And I didn't face real adversity in my life until my mother passed away. It was somewhat unexpected. It was September 26th of 2003, and she was 62 years old. And by most accounts, people would say, well, that's too young, particularly if you knew my mom because she was bigger than life and laughter and friends and people. And she was a big member of the community, always volunteering at the church. So she was one of those people that you enjoy being around. And I did not take my mother's passing well. It changed me. And one of the things that I realized that if I saw someone die in a TV show, and that, that happens all the time, right? I don't think there's a TV show anymore where somebody doesn't die in at least one episode, right? right. So the, you know, the Game of Thrones death where somebody gets their head chopped off, that doesn't affect me. But it's when it's someone losing a loved one, someone rushes to the hospital in the last possible moment to say goodbye to someone they care about or somebody is trying to save someone's life and they lose them. I cry every single time now. That's a trigger for me. I get it because I have a trigger as well as you say that. My ex-husband was in the military, so there was a lot of deployments. There was a lot of saying goodbye. There was a lot of welcome homes. I can't watch a lot of the military-type movies or anything without having that emotional reaction. So now that you understand that trigger, it should be easier to manage. Not easy, but it should be easier. So now that I've identified this trigger and what I associate it with, I'm a lot better about it. It still happens, Mm -hmm. but... It used to happen every single time. And now I'd say it's somewhere between 30 and 50% that when I see something like that, that it, it tugs at the heartstrings, as people would like to say. Now, on the other side of that, I started crying for joy a lot more, too. Like when I see that beautiful moment in a movie where a parent is reunited with a child, and I think it's because of the connection I had with my mother and that sense of loss that is just reinforced to me that sense of connection with my child, with my own children. So you want to start to evaluate what are your triggers begin systematically working on them because we've all heard the term that guy just pushes your buttons. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't have to let them push your buttons. If there's one thing that I have seen in our country right now is that we're a very divided country. And in particular, around politics. it That is a trigger button for everybody in this day and age. If I just say the word Donald Trump, everybody listening to your podcast is now on high alert. <laughs> it's true. Because they all have a strong opinion, for or against. Sure. That's immaterial. They all have a strong opinion. That immediately puts people on high alert. Now, somebody that is truly at a high emotional intelligence level, they will approach that comment with a sense of curiosity. They will say, I wonder where he's going with this. But for the majority of us, brace for impact. I'm ready. You're going to say something, and if you agree with me, I'm going to pump my fist and go, yeah. And if I disagree with you, I'm, I'm on the attack. And not everything elicits that, but that's almost a universal trigger in the United States today. So it sounds like a sense of curiosity is a great step towards emotional intelligence or piece of becoming emotionally intelligent or being emotionally intelligent. Absolutely. When I do my seminars, and this works best when it's in a room filled with people, it, it can work with 20 people, but I did this 
back in February for a room of about a hundred people. So you got, you know, 10 tables, 10, pre, 10 people at each table. And I said, okay, we're going to do an exercise now. And I said, you're not going to like me, but just stay with me because it's going to make sense when I'm all done. And then I said, all right, I want everybody to stand up and change your tables, find a new chair. You can't sit, you can't stay at your table. You can't go to the same chair at the next table. And that disrupted things for about five minutes. I said, okay, with a very rare exception, there was a small handful of you that when I asked you to do that, were curious. Everyone else, about 95% of you, all had some level of annoyance with me. Somewhere from mild annoyance to all the way to the other end where you said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not moving. This is stupid. And the crowd, the crowd laughed. I said, so let me ask you a question. What we just did, will it matter 12 months from now? And they said, no. I said, will it matter six months from now? And they said, no. Will it matter a month from now? No. Will it matter tomorrow? No. Will it matter one hour from now? And they said, no. I said, so if it won't even matter an hour from now, why'd you get upset? Because it was a trigger. We get set in our ways to expect certain things. And the curious mind will take that and go, ooh, this is interesting. I get the chance to learn something. But our content filters are used to being efficient and lazy. So we take that experience to go, there, there's no value to this. I'm, I'm angry. I'm annoyed. Or, any, or anywhere on the spectrum between angry and annoyed. What I really liked about what you just told us, and lots, I mean, it was all really great, is that asking yourself that question, will this even matter? And either whether you work your way backwards from a year to a day to an hour, or you, I guess, work your way forwards, um, determining at what point it will still matter I think would help help myself say how important is this to get all worked up about. I think that's where you were going with that to a point. Yes. So another famous saying is stop making a mountain out of a molehill. Isn't that perspective? So something yeah. that's a mountain to you may be a molehill to me and the other way around. That doesn't make either perspective wrong. It makes them different. And I assume that's based on our individual content filters, what we've learned in 100%. life. 100%. This is really interesting. I'm enjoying this very much. I'm learning. One of my, fa my, one of my favorite writers is the late Dr. Stephen Covey. Oh, yeah. And he has many quotes, but perhaps my favorite is, you see things differently than me. I need to listen to you. And that's the core of having that open curiosity. I like that. I hope our listeners take that away as just a great piece of whether it's a, take it as advice or whether just sage wisdom. But that open curiosity, I think that is an amazing, amazing takeaway from our conversation. Thanks. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I can't, I'm looking at the clock going, how have we been talking for 30 minutes already? Because I think it's I'm so enamored by what you're saying. I have a couple more questions that I really wanted to ask you, especially one, especially as it relates to LinkedIn, is if there was one thing you would tell everyone out there to stop doing on LinkedIn, whether it's because <laughs> it would make them more emotionally intelligent or whether it would just be better for sales or business or getting a job. What's the one thing you see people do in general over and over again on LinkedIn that you just want to scream or yell through the computer or grab them by the neck and say, stop doing? Stop posting memes. Ah. There's an unhealthy progress in the LinkedIn world where people are treating LinkedIn like Facebook more and more. And this ties into 
emotional intelligence. In my mind, LinkedIn is a business platform for business engagement. So when I do my training, I always say to my clients, what is the result that you want from this post? Whether you are posting content yourself or whether you are responding to content, that's a very emotional, intelligence-driven metric. And I think most people don't think about it. I had a, a connection on my network a couple weeks ago that his post started out great. His post said, I'm tired of unprofessional posts on LinkedIn. Great. I'm for that. Maybe not the language, but I'm for that. So his response was to post a heavy metal video. And not just a heavy metal video, but a heavy metal video of a very controversial band whose lyrics are predominantly satanic. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, man, I love the start of your post, but you probably didn't go about this in a way that's going to be a productive engagement. And I said, and I said, I'm a big heavy metal fan, too. I have been since I was 14 years old. I said, but posting a video of a heavy metal band that is one controversial and two predominantly has satanic lyrics, I said, there's a really good chance you're going to exclude a significant chunk of your audience. And his response to me was, well, I'm just tired of all the inappropriate posts. I said, all right, I, I, I get it. Good luck to you, man. <laughs> so his response to being tired of of the unprofessional post was to do one himself? Yes, to throw gasoline on the fire, correct. Interesting. I'm curious as to what he was thinking when you mentioned that. I'm like, my curiosity is piqued as to where are we going with this? Why would you do that? What's the purpose? I had another friend who posted something that was just laden with profanity. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, I, I understand that you're feeling frustrated about something, but posting something like this on LinkedIn is kind of career suicide. And he wrote back, I think his words were, I just got to do what I do. And I said, Okay. <laughs> and best of luck to you. <laughs> good, 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 good luck to you. Because <laughs> I can't see a whole lot of people going, yeah, right on. This, uh, this is great content. <laughs> sure. I wrote an article a while ago. It's uh, birds of a feather, like attracts like. If you're going to post the things that you don't, you know, like the heavy metal video because you think it's inappropriate, you're going to attract more people who probably attract, you know, are willing to listen to and post the unprofessional things, which is exactly the opposite of what you were looking for. Or in the case of your other friend, people who do respond well to it aren't necessarily the people who are the kinds of business people you are looking to attract. That, that's an excellent point because as you surround yourself with better people, you get better content. So those two examples that I shared with you, they really are exceptions in my feed. The or, percent of the content that I see is often highly productive. Because you're connecting with people who are of the caliber that you're at and people you want to connect with. So, of course, you're going to see the kind of content you want to see. Yes. Yeah. And that's a great piece of advice also, not to just connect with everybody, but connect with the people who are going to add the most value to your, to your knowledge, your network, and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and I do a whole segment on that, which we don't have time to go into today. But, yeah, there's a right way and a wrong way to connect on LinkedIn. Oh, <laughs> 
I, I, yeah, I imagine you have a lot of valuable information. We may have to have another conversation just to discuss that. I was most interested in discussing emotional intelligence today, but I also know there's a lot of people listening who may find LinkedIn to be one of those areas that they want to use better. And of course, I'll be sharing your contact information with everyone within the show notes. So if you're listening to this, please check those out. If you want to reach out to Mike or learn more about LinkedIn training or emotional intelligence training, he's obviously a go-to guy on that. We'll make sure your contact information is available. And before we do conclude, the whole reason the show exists in the first place, and I love these conversations, the reason the show exists was to discuss success from the perspective of my guests, because I like the idea that success can be different things to different people, and you get to define your own, make your own definition of what success is. Tell us what it is currently for you, because it may be something different today than it was a year ago or a week ago or a (laughs) month ago or 10 years ago, and it may very well end up being something different in the future. What is it that guides you today so that you know that was successful? Wow, what a great question, and there's so many layers to that. And my, my current situation is very interesting in that had we had this interview two months ago, I would have had a very different definition. Uh, I left corporate America in August. I'd been doing Mike Shield Consulting as a side project for a while. And I think you and I talked offline, but I, uh, I was pushed as opposed to leaving of my own volition. And I said, I need to make this happen. I need to make it work. And for me, success has been replacing the income that I was earning in corporate America 100% by myself. So I was making a good living. I was making six figures as a salesman in corporate America. And comparatively, particularly these last couple of weeks, I have been able to replace that by practicing what I preach, following my own guidelines and driving new clients. That's fantastic. And I'm curious, what would your answer have been two months ago as a corporate employee? Probably getting a promotion. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and a great lesson from that perspective of success. It's it's going to change. Don't get so stuck on the definition. Follow it for what it is today, but realize that over time it will be something else and be re- and be willing to be willing to examine that from time to time. The only constant is change. Absolutely. And all my change manager friends out there are probably going, "Heck yeah. Hallelujah to that." <laughs> there's a whole occupation out there in change management, which is an interesting topic on its own. This has been really great. Give us one lesson learned that, and it can be whether it's from the perspective of starting your own business or whether it's something completely different, that's up to you, but a lesson you've learned that you would want to share so that maybe someone listening can sidestep the the challenge or learn faster or learn from your mistake or whatever it might be, elevate their learning and, and get there quicker. Is there one piece of advice or one lesson learned you would share? You are surrounded that love you and care about you. If that circle is two people or 2,000 people, you are surrounded by people that love you and care about you and want to see you succeed. Utilize that for your success. Lovely. Thank you so much. And we'll talk again. Maybe next time we'll discuss LinkedIn uh, more specifically or something else. But this has been a ton of fun. I'm so glad to know you. You've been a great value to me. You're someone who is all about making introductions which I greatly appreciate. And having more people like you in my my network is definitely a good thing. This has been a heck of a lot of fun, and I'll come back on the show anytime you ask me, Sharon. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening today. Tune in for our next episode. And in the meantime, you can get more resources at www.c-suiteresults.com. Make it a successful day. Like what you just heard? Visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.